On September 23rd, I woke up feeling great, poised to make my first ever pot roast for my new husband. When I called my mother to ask her for the recipe, she seemed distant but calmly told me what to do. We finished the call with my telling her that I would phone her later that day to tell her how my meal turned out. After preparing my roast and being pleased with how it looked simmering in the oven, I tried calling mom to tell her about my cooking success, but there was no answer. Good morning, this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with Fordham alum and author Valerie Irick Rainford. She's here to share her true life story that takes us through her challenging youth to devastating deaths to her inspiring and impressive career firsts. So Valerie, why didn't your mom answer? I'm waiting around the pot roasters cooking, simmering, and the phone rings and a woman whose voice I didn't recognize, but she said she was a friend of my mother's, um, said she had been in an accident and I needed to get to Jacoby Hospital in the Bronx. And when I got to Jacoby Hospital, my cousin was already there to greet me and they broke the news that my mom had killed herself. You know, for those of you who know Jacoby Hospital, it is and was then 30 years ago, a very crowded hospital. But to me, my memory of walking into Jacoby was that it was empty. It was eerie. It smelled. It had a very strange smell. But as I'm going down this empty, smelly hall comes this woman in a white lab coat. So you're sort of in a haze I'm almost. in a haze from that point and for a long time after. Valerie, did your mom leave a note? She did. Uh, I'd gone to her apartment and perched just inside the door was a envelope. And on the front of it was a note to me. How long did it take you to read it? Oh, it was three sentences. I believe it said, I'm sorry, I couldn't take it anymore. I love you. Why do you think your mom took her life? I don't know, Robin. For years, I describe in my book of searching for the answer and not knowing the answer and blaming myself. We were very, very close. And so I had absolutely no inkling of her struggle. I knew she was struggling financially. I knew that life was hard. Her, I mean, the entire life had been hard, but there was no indication that she would have done something like that. In part of your book, uh, Until the Brighter Tomorrow, One Woman's Courageous Climb from the Projects to the Podium, you write in the voice of your mother trying yes. to explain why she took her own life. Uh, where you say, in the voice of your mom, you say things like, you know, I, I can't take it anymore. I tried yes. to fight, but I'm tired. Why do you think these are the things that your mom would have said? It took me probably a whole year to write that chapter. But what I wrote is what she was saying to me after I got past the guilt and I was able to hear her. I do not believe that that was something that was part of her character that one day did not define who she was to me. And I believe she just lost her will and her faith. And once I got to that realization, I started to hear her. And that's what I still hear her say to me. I made a mistake. So you think it was a mistake? I believe that she lost her strength. Her life was one of always pushing past adversity. And so when I say that day, I think that it was in that moment that she lost her faith, she lost her will, she lost her strength to keep fighting. Yeah. And she took her own life, but I believe that that's not who she is, and I believe that she regrets having done that. You say you felt guilty. Why? 
because we were that team, right? Like it was just she and I, you know, I started working early to help her pay the bills. She, everything she did was for me. I had just moved out because you moved because I got married, right? When she took her own life without any explanation for me, I had to come up with them myself. And the only thing I could think of was I changed the situation for us. Now, I have to ask you, you have two daughters. I do. How much of a responsibility is it for a child to care for the parent? And at the time, you weren't a parent when your mom passed away, but now you are. So I understand you feel you feeling guilty as the daughter, but did you really need to feel guilty? I mean, would you want your daughters to feel guilty, God forbid, for growing up and getting married and going out? And absolutely fun? not. Right. A- absolutely not. Which is why I ultimately got past it. Part of my interest in telling this story is I can't tell you how many people come up to me now that the story is out and say to me, my father committed suicide or my brother committed suicide. And people walk with the guilt every day. And I think it's natural to walk with the guilt. But I also think the reason died with her. But when I got past the guilt and started to hear her, and she's like, girl, this was not your fault. And now I can step back and be very comfortable with the story and help other people get past adversity. So I believe that it's my purpose to tell the story, to help other people realize they're never going to know the answer. They have to move past the guilt. So Valerie, this was not your first experience with suicide. What happened with your brother? Can you share that? So when I was a junior in high school, um, my middle brother committed suicide. And in the same way, with no indication whatsoever to the rest of us. You know, he was a hard working young man. And one day we got the the message um, and we were completely thrown. And I also I write in the book that I don't believe now in thinking back on it that my mother ever recovered from that. Mm-hmm. Did you have any of the similar feelings that you had with your mother when it happened to your brother? No, I think I was too young at that time. Um, and he lived in South Carolina with his family. We were in New York, but we were close. Mm-hmm. For my brother, I didn't feel the guilt at that age. So Valerie, we talk about your your bond, your connection with your mom. What was your mom's life like growing up? Oh, it was it was hard. She grew up in a small town called Ellery, South Carolina. Um, my grandparents were sharecroppers in Ellery, um, and they worked the land of a local white landowner there. Um, and my mother and her siblings were working as well. When uh, my mom was three, my grandfather was run off the road and he was left to die in a ditch. And uh, a couple days later, the landowner who my grandmother was working for um, put her out of the house and put a lock on the barn. So she got kicked out of her so house. She lost was her husband with six children. And had six kids. And my mom was three. How did your parents meet? My father uh, grew up in the same little town. His family sharecropped nearby land. And so my mom tells the story of she hated that life. And she would look up for the man who was going to take her out of the fields. <laughs> and that was my father. Her Edward Prince R. Charming. Her Prince Charming. Um, and so they got married, um, had my brother Jay, literally nine months later. 
um, sharecropped for a long time in Ellery uh, with my older brother also learning to sharecrop too. Um, and then uh, along comes my second brother. Shortly after my second brother comes along, they were able to move to the city in Columbia, South Carolina, where my father became a truck driver and my mom did domestic work. And as time went on, you had a lot of different moves. How many places did you live? Oh, my. So by the time I was three, my parents divorced. My father moved to Connecticut and my mom migrated to New York. We always had difficulty finding good places to live. Uh, so we moved probably every year, if not a little bit less than that. Then so, you tell the story in your book about how you had woken up with a, a, a swamp rat yes, on your chest. Yes. And your mom said, we've got to we, move. We're out of here. <laughs> we are gone. We are out of here. Um, and you so, did get to see your father sometimes. He would come and get you from Connecticut. Yeah, my father would drive down from Connecticut to pick me up, take me up with his family. Um, and, of course, we balanced that with the fact that I was working from the time. I was, you know, 13. What was your first job? Well, the first one was in that drive-in restaurant at five years old. And I talk about that. <laughs> I talk about that in South Carolina. My mom had this, uh, she had a job making burgers and frying chicken at a drive-in restaurant. And I stood on a box and helped take orders. Right. So, And I didn't get paid, but I got tips. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And those five cents, the nickels and the dimes I love. So I say that was my first job at right. five years old. So what was your relationship like with your mom when you entered junior high? Um, great. I think I went to school without my mother. I went to work without my mother, but that was it. We did everything together. And now your mom was one of your closest friends, but you also had a best friend uh, in junior high, and you learned a, a pretty pretty tough lesson. What happened with that friend? I lived in Hillside Homes, they called them, and, but I attended John Philip Sousa Junior High School, which is on Baychester Avenue in the Bronx. And occasionally when I had a break, I now got to hang out with some friends. I never had that before. Um, so I write about this one experience in the book where, you know, I didn't have to get to work that day. But my mom, you know, she worked at night and it was important to her that I be in the house before she went to sleep. And so I had a curfew. And on this one particular day, I leave school and my friends were going to hang out and they were going to the rooftop in one of the buildings in Edenwall Project. So I'm like, well, I got a little bit of time. Let me right. <laughs> let me go let hang me out, go out too. Like I never had friends before. I could never hang out before. Because you were working before. a lot. You I was work. working. Right. And we moved so much. I never had friends, Robin. So here I am. I got these friends. And they're not quite doing what I know I should be doing. <laughs> but I'm trying to make friends. And so, yeah, I went up to the top of the rooftop. A little bit of peer pressure. A little, that was a whole lot of peer pressure. <laughs> What were they doing on the roof? Smoking weed. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I smoked some too because I needed to look like I was part of the crowd. You wanted to be cool. Right? But as I realized I had lost track of time, I tell the story in the book of racing down the stairs. Because it's and past you your do, curfew. It's past my curfew. And if you just visualize it that I'm sitting on it like, oh, and I ran downstairs and I get to. So the whole idea about weed making you a lot calmer hella, does not work. Well, in not this if case. you think of, like my mom has such high expectations for right. me. So I race out of the front door and it was almost like. <laughs> and we know why you and had to stop. Know, because my mother was standing in front of the building packing a switch. She, and for those of you who don't know what a switch is, it's a tree branch. <laughs> 
At least she didn't make like, you go get it yourself. Well, well, that's because she was too determined. <laughs> but and my mother was standing. She, everybody in the area knew everybody, and so I was not home on time. So she started walking backwards to meet me to figure out why I had missed uh-huh. my curfew, and she literally beat me with the switch. No one even considered calling a cop or right. BCW. Right. Like that was expected. Right. That, that you do something wrong and you get punished for it how your parents saw that's fit. Right. That's right. Right. Now, to be clear, I'm not advocating for that for today's children. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that that's how it was. It was a different time. It was a different time. And I say it was a different time and a different place. And people looked out for each other's kids very differently. Right. Right. I think we've learned that there is a different way to admonish children Mm -hmm. but that was what they knew right and guess what it worked (laughs) i never went back that was all the point that's all she wanted no that's all that's all she wrote (laughs) i never went back to a rooftop again Mm -hmm. i was not going to be caught doing anything that would cause my mother to but it wasn't valerie it wasn't just because of the beating though it was because of the disappointment you pointed out in your book, too. Oh, absolutely. That you did not want to disappoint your mother. Yes. Mm-hmm. And she says to me, that's what your dumb friends do. You want to do the same? Like, it was her beating me was a reminder that that's not who she wanted me to be. Right. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with Fordham alum and author Valerie Irick Rainford. She's discussing her book, Until the Brighter Tomorrow, One Woman's Courageous Climb from the Projects to the Podium. Lead me up to what happened when you joined the Catholic school. I tell the story in the book of going to visit with my dad one weekend. And I go to my room. My dad told my mom, after I went to my room, my dad said to my mom, she was especially quiet this weekend. And so my mother calls me into the kitchen. You know, Daddy said you were extra quiet this weekend. And that's when you busted out. Busted out in tears. Like, I don't want to be like them. Like, please don't make me go there again. Don't make me go. Don't make me go. And my dad is like, baby girl, where don't you want to go? And I was talking about Evander Childs. That's where all the people I was hanging out with were going. Right. And that's the place that everybody was looking forward to doing even more of the stuff that they were doing. Right. And so I pleaded with my parents to let me go somewhere else. And so the words just poured out of my mouth. I want to go somewhere else. Right. Like, send me one in private schools. I don't know. Let me do something. (laughs) And the challenge is the school you ended up going to, it cost money. Oh, absolutely. And you were already a little strapped for cash. You're working and helping your mom pay the bills. Catholic school. We were Mm -hmm. not Catholic. So, of course, your mom's looking at you like, huh? I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but I, I was working. I was making money. My parents, in the quest to shut me up, said, well, let's see what we can do. And so I was now on a mission, and I researched the schools. I say that I walked past um, Cardinal Spellman every day because it's right across the street from John Philip Sousa. Had no thought of ever going there, right? I wasn't Catholic. That's not where I was supposed to go. But when I started thinking about these private schools, that's the first thing that came to mind. So I researched that. $250 a month tuition. So I said, well, let me try another one. <laughs> now, to put this in perspective, how much did it cost for you to pay tuition to go to the school you went to? It was $250 a month. And how much did you make at the job you had? I was probably pulling down a good $125 a week. And I remember giving my mother $75 a week. I probably had about $50 in my pocket. 
So now not only are you working to help pay the bills in the house, but you're also working for your own education. That's right. Right. That's right. I researched this other school I had never heard of, and it was St. Catherine's Academy on Williamsbridge Road across town. I presented it to my parents that I'd find these two schools. Could I apply? And my parents were like, we can't afford that. Like, but I'll pay. (laughs) I will find a way. Like, I think I can do $100 a month if you guys can do the rest. And so once again, my parents said, well, let's see. Because I think they thought the issue was going to go away. Mm -hmm. And then I got accepted to both schools. (laughs) And I say, Cardinal Spellman's letter required that I do summer school and I couldn't do that because I had to work work. (laughs) right so by process of elimination (laughs) bye-bye I accepted the gig across town when you first went to the school how different was it oh my lord uniforms a lot of structure religion class like what I didn't know anything about that but then I think the other big difference was I was from a predominantly minority community Going to St. Catherine's, it was a predominantly Italian Catholic student population in dual family homes. So here's another example of you seeing different lifestyle from what you were raised in. Yes, yes, yes. And then I found the job at Key Food Supermarket. Now, why was this job at the supermarket? How did that change your life? Well, because number one. And I love the story. Number one, it was on the books. First time. First time. <laughs> it was legal. So so, so that was important. Um, and by this time, I was really good with money. The job was as a cashier on the front line. And as you might envision, in those days, it was all king, register king. You had to know math. You had to know money. And you had to be quick because mm-hmm. those folks, they were not waiting in line for and you. And they were also different from what you were used to. That's right. So that was a predominantly older Jewish community. Mm -hmm. So here I am, trained on the front line, and I became the best cashier on the front line. Because remember, like, I'm young, but I've got all this experience having worked, right? And over time, that led me to running the front in high school. You're in charge. I'm in charge. I'm in charge of the money, right? not just the people, but the money. And I only knew poverty, right? Mm-hmm. So here I am, and I'm seeing these people. They usually come in in the same clothes. They come in at the same time all the time. The ones that got to know me were regulars through my line. I got to know their names. What did those little sweet Jewish women teach you about money? The coupon and saving every little bit you could was what I learned at the key food shop because I didn't even think about coupons. We just go to the little bodega in in our neighborhood and get what we needed. And of course there were supermarkets there, but to me, the prices there were always a little bit higher. So mom and I started shopping in my supermarket where I worked clipping coupons just like everybody else did. And mind you, these, these, these sweet little Jewish women were wealthy. Oh, I didn't know that at the time. And in the book, I talk about changing jobs to a bank and became a bank teller. Again, with, the, with very similar skills. I was always accurate, always fast. Became, you know, got people who would regularly come through my line. I saw the same kind of people, not the same people, but the same kind of people, little, older Jewish people in 
clothes that looked the same or similar mm-hmm. every time they came in. And the only purpose for them to come in was to see their money grow. They rarely took money out. So I then made the connection that the same kind of people who were saving their money with the coupons were saving it so that they can put it away. Like I had never seen that much money in my life. And so while I learned at Key Food that saving was important, it blew my mind right. when I got to Dollar Dry Dock Savings do. Bank of what it could do. So did you take this information back home and go, Mom? Oh, all the time. You know, th- and what did she say to you? Did she say, you're going in finance, honey? <laughs> no, no. She's like, these are great lessons for you. You're yeah. going to use these one day. But I don't know that she knew enough to point me in a finance direction. Her reinforcement was just that these are all great things for me to, to learn. To prepare you for that opportunity. And to prepare me to be, you know, the best. She'd always say, whatever you do, be the best. Valerie, what is Mosaic? Ah, so Mosaic is a women's group that a friend of mine and I started at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Which is where you work. Which is where I worked for 21 years. And I love to coach and mentor. I love to see people in general get past struggle. I love to see the the lights go off in people's eyes when, you know, they found a solution to a problem. And I particularly like to do that with women. And so a friend of mine approached me one day and said, Val, like, I really want to start a support group for our women. And you're the best person for me to partner with. And so as she, she will tell the story that I didn't hesitate. And yes, was the immediate answer. And we pulled together um, a couple women who we knew had talent but were struggling in the organization and every month we brought them together over lunch and they were struggling with what they were struggling with advancing in the organization they were struggling with feeling like they belonged they were struggling with getting good feedback with advancing to where they thought they had potential to be looking around and seeing other people who are advancing and not knowing what they could be doing differently And I was the most senior African-American woman at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And my friend had a senior HR type role. She was trained in the organizational dynamics and the people development piece. And I had the experience of having navigated the place. So it was a great partnership. And I started telling snippets of my story to the women to help them understand that I knew what they were going through. And Mosaic, it was the first employee network group at the Federal Reserve, and it still exists, and I still have contact with those women. But there was one particular time where you actually had not planned on talking about it at the game. (laughs) And you're sitting there with with some other uh, moms, so-called soccer moms. My husband and I were talking about this one last night. He teases me. Uh, Tell me what happened that day. So um, my my children are now um, older. They're both playing soccer. Two daughters. Two daughters. And I was like number one cheering mom on the sidelines. So here I am on the sidelines with a couple of other moms. And someone in the neighborhood had just committed suicide. And no one knew my story, right? So here are these moms talking about this man as if he was a demon, 
You know, how could he dare take his life and leave that poor woman? And his wife and, and his, his kids, children, how dare he? And how selfish. And and as I say in the book, it pissed me off. <laughs> and I'm standing there and I tried to be quiet and I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I blurted out, well, maybe he just lost hope. And that just fueled them a little, <laughs> a little bit more. Well, my brother committed suicide. That's what you say. At, with an expletive on the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they just looked at me. And by the way, so did my mother. And she wasn't crazy either. And I stood there and looked at them. And they were staring at me. And then I turned and I walked away. Um, it hit me that I had just told these people my story. But I had not told my children. Right. As I sat in the stands, my anger turned into fear because there was no way I would let my children find out right. from their schoolmates or their mothers. But it also makes an interesting point to the judgment or the idea that it's a mental illness or the idea that someone was selfish. Why do you think we tag all these titles to something that is still being studied. I think the reason why we go straight to mental illness is because that's what the statistics say. But I believe through my own experience, I'm not an expert on suicide. I believe that particularly in inner city communities and particularly of people of color, that the challenges are huge. And it can be money and it could be family or it could be work, you know. And, and I think when you're in that pit and what I say to folks is you have to hold on like you have to hold on because the flicker of light it's gonna come that my mom didn't wait for her flicker of light so Valerie how are you you spreading the message of until a brighter tomorrow the book that's out right now um you can you could say that I'm trying to replicate chapter 17 chapter 17 I titled it the little black girl that could um, it was a few years ago, and I was asked to come speak at a teen summit, and it was a day-long activity out at uh, Stony Brook University where the teens were brought in to empower them to do something different with their lives. And I delivered the story to the students um, describing this little black girl who just kept going through these life challenges and left the story ending making them wonder what happened to the little girl. Because the story was your life. It was, it was but they, just didn't, that know they that. didn't know that <laughs> part. <laughs> right, right. So to them, I'm telling them the story of this, you know, this little girl that had been through all this stuff. And then I opened the conversation with them about what they thought happened with the little girl. So you said, oh, so how many people think the little girl, you know, committed suicide, committed suicide or ended up on drugs? Mom or on drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very interesting thing to watch. I'm standing behind this podium, and these kids are debating the little girl's fate. And to them, all of the answers were negative. And some of them thought she committed suicide, and some of them thought she was an unwed mom with a house full of babies. <laughs> Others thought she was a druggie. Um, but none of them had given them an experience of something positive happening to the little girl. And so I stopped their chatter and said, so guys, why do you think I'm here? Why was I picked to come in and talk to you today and I got blank stares and it was in that moment I said to them because I'm the little girl and just pure shock just pure shock and so how what I'm doing today to answer your question is that experience told me the power of the story and encouraged me 
to finish the story. And so now I just did an appearance at Roxbury Community College where a sociology professor made the book part of his curriculum. And then I went to the school to discuss it with them. And Robin, I'm going to tell you, there was one young man in particular. He looked just like my brother Anki. And he started talking about the life that he was living and he was trying to get out of it. And he didn't know what to do. But when he read my story, he felt like there was something there for him. And so it was as if he forgot there was an audience and I forgot there was an audience. And I just kept trying to bring him to his brighter tomorrow. And I was thrilled that by the end of the day, he was hugging me. He was like, Mrs. Rainford, if you can do it, I could do it. Like, I feel like you were meant to come here and talk to me today. And that's the experience I'm trying to create over and over and over again. Valerie, you couldn't, you weren't given the opportunity to talk to your mom before she took her life. Um, What would you say to her the second before she picked up that gun if you had an opportunity? Mm. I need you here. I wish you were here. I'd like to thank my guest, author Valerie Irick Rainford. Her book, Until the Brighter Tomorrow, One Woman's Courageous Climb from the Projects to the Podium, is out now from Ellery Press. I'd also like to thank my producer, Megan Connor. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.